This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. History, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. This is Pass the Mic. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? This episode I'm excited about. It is right up my alley, but we're going we're gonna to have a great dialogue on it. It's 2020, and as you probably noticed, we're switching things up a little bit. Jamar started the episode by reading a quote from the classic writer and activist James Baldwin. James Baldwin talks in that quote about the witness of history. This entire first season, we're going to talk about the theme, can I get a witness? Now, you've probably heard us say it before. We're going to give further contours on what we mean. What does it really mean to be a witness? What does it really mean to represent ourselves and our savior well in light of our culture, in light of the politically charged, socially tight, intense, all of the pressures that we're going to be facing in life? What does it mean to be a witness? So the first episode is dedicated to being a witness within the context of history. Now, Jamar, this is right up your alley. As a matter of fact, we should probably say, because it is happening this week, It is the one-year anniversary of your groundbreaking book, The Color of Compromise. How do you feel? This year has been a whirlwind, and I never expected the book to get the response that it's gotten or the experiences that I've gotten as a result of it. So I've literally been from coast to coast in the United States and even internationally speaking about The Color of Compromise. I just think it hit at a particular moment in our nation, in our world, where people were recognizing, maybe for the first time, the importance, the salience, the relevance of history, and especially as it pertains to religion. So uh, God, you know, answered exceedingly beyond, you know, <laughs> yeah. my my prayers or imagination. And uh, it's been an incredible year. Thank you all so much for anybody who's read, reviewed, engaged with the book. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really been um, breathtaking. And you know, I always joke with you that you're the roots guy, right? So you're the guy who's always going to bring us back to the roots of history. But over the past year or two, partially helped by your book and getting to know you even better in the context of The Witness, I've come to realize that history is so vitally important, so much so that I enjoyed history when I was growing up, but I think I've underrated history's influence on the now. 
Um, and, and it's so interesting as I kind of think about what does it mean to be a witness, which is, you know, kind of the theme for season one, as I mentioned, that a witness has to be historically informed. Yeah. A witness has to be someone who is constantly learning from the example of the past. And I want to talk about it in two contexts here. First, a witness needs to be historically informed, but also a witness needs to be historically rooted as well. So this is knowledge, and then that's the application Mm -hmm, of that knowledge mm -hmm. um, in tandem. So as we think about this pattern, what's the pattern of learning about history? Like some people say, as we think about our past it's almost as though, you know, growing up, there was this mentality that the older black generations didn't want to talk about history, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of stuff I had to kind of pry out of them, yep. or also I had to kind of learn for myself, mm-hmm. right? So recently, my uh, grandfather I'm on my dad's side, he passed, and uh, that was my dad's biological father, who he really didn't have much of a relationship with, and- you know, in the context of the funeral, actually seeing the program, I didn't get a chance to go to the funeral, but I saw the program uh, because my father went. And, I, you know, I looked at the program and saw that the mayor of his city was present. Hmm. I saw that he won awards. I saw hmm. that there were certain things that he did and accomplished in life that I didn't know anything about. And I don't know really if my dad knew about it either, but there's a sense that history is just kind of this vague mystery. Yeah. And it's almost dangerous and scary for black people to uncover, you know, that part of themselves. Yep. Yep. I want to tell two stories and the lessons that we can learn from studying history. The first is in 2019, it was the 100 year anniversary of the Elaine massacre. This is an event not a lot of people know about for exactly the reasons you're saying. So white people didn't talk about it because there was a sense of shame and collusion to hide this thing. Black people didn't talk about it because there was a, there was so much pain right. and it was risky yeah. for a really long time. For most of that century, it was risky to bring this thing up. So the Elaine massacre happened in Phillips County, Arkansas, which is in the Delta, and It was a white race riot perpetrated against black sharecroppers. Black sharecroppers had gathered at a black church, no less, Hmm. to – they were a union, and they were trying to negotiate for fair prices on cotton, the cotton they picked. And two white police officers, law enforcement people were kind of spying on them. An altercation occurred, and a shootout happened One of the officers ended up dead. The other was wounded. And of course, this leads to violence. So white people put out in newspapers and on the wire that uh, it's a Negro insurrection. Black people are rising up to, Hmm. to overthrow white people, which has never been. That's not what they were doing. But people, white people from Arkansas, from Tennessee, from Mississippi, all came and over the course of just a couple of days killed over 200 black men, women, and children sharecroppers. Hmm. Hmm. Can you think about the, I mean, think about the Hmm. magnitude of that. Literally hundreds of people shot down, Hmm. poor black people. Imagine that happening today, right? Right, right. Okay, so so it was this massive thing that was covered, and only in the past 10 or 15 years have people even begun to talk about it. And so in the county seat of Phillips County, they finally opened a memorial to Hmm. the Elaine Massacre. What studying something like that does is it puts those secrets out into the open Hmm. 
so that people can begin to heal, hmm. not just black people, but also white people. You know, and even as we think about that, you know, it really that story, it really underscores what I'm what I'm saying, which is this mentality that to uncover the past is to uncover a history of violence. Mm. It's always to uncover cover a yeah. history of not just violence, but also a history of trauma. Yes. And so I think most of us, we run from history and we run from the discipline, not because we think it's boring, but because it's traumatic yeah. and it's triggering. Yep. And so as we think about being historically informed, is our history only violence? Mm-hmm. Are we only telling our story within the context of oppression? Mm-hmm. Are we only telling our story within the context of bigotry and discrimination and marginalization? Like how do we how do we get out of that yeah. kind of cycle? And so I'm thinking about ways that we can celebrate who we are, but not always take us back to that one common denominator, which is you know, violence, death, pain, trauma. Well, but me, it's 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 yeah. kind of ubiquitous, right? It, it, I mean, it's ubiquitous, and they're in, integrally connected. Hmm. So hmm. that what has become black culture and experience is deeply connected to the experience of racism, white supremacy, and violence. So let me tell you another story that sort of gives the sort of positive or joyful aspect of the black experience. So I was talking to two of my mom's friends recently who are both in their 70s. Hmm. And I just asked them this basic question. I do this with, with you know, lots of older black people. I just asked them this broad question, what was it like growing up? Hmm. And it's interesting where they go. So the first thing they said was geography. Each of them grew up in the Deep South, one in Arkansas, one in Alabama. Then they said occupation. They grew up as farmers. Their parents were farmers, but not just farmers. They were sharecroppers, yeah, of, course. of course, which is an economically exploitative system designed to keep the sharecropper, mostly black people, in debt to the plantation owner. And so they literally grew up picking cotton. And so they were telling me their stories. They told me their stories of oppression and poverty, that they couldn't go to school on time because they had to wait until the crop was picked. Hmm. And then they had to leave school when it was time to go back to planting. Meanwhile, their wealthier, usually white counterparts are getting you know, the full school year. Right. Uh, they were telling, I, I asked them if they, they knew their grandparents or great-grandparents. One of the ladies told me that uh, according to family lore, her great-grandmother fled North Carolina because she killed her slave master. Hmm. She was tired of the rape, tired of the abuse, tired of the exploitation, and fled to another part of the South. And these are the stories wow. that we, you know, they'll never make the paper, but it sort of just gets passed down, right? But here's, here's the thing that stuck out to me. As they were telling these stories of hardship, they actually had a glow in their eyes because hmm. hmm. they were talking about their families, and how tight-knit they were, and all their brothers and sisters, and the the experiences that they had together. They were talking about what my parents taught me, hard work, yeah. what that means, yeah. what that looks like, and how to value it. And I'm passing that on to my grandkids, et cetera, et cetera. So, so tied to the experience of racism and oppression and marginalization is black joy. Huh. It's, it's the joy that can that arises out of that crucible of suffering. Hmm. And that's what history teaches us, too. It's not just that we've experienced these bad things. It's that in the midst of that, we were able to be creative and have families and fall in love and, and 
achieve beyond what anybody mm-hmm. wanted us to or expected us to and have that sense of joy that that the world didn't give and the world can't take away. So they're they're connected. Right. And and so it's it's kind of this whole idea we had the conference last year, the Joy and Justice Conference, that you can't really interpret the black experience without both of these. That's that right. It's the reality. But you're talking about something and I even mentioned it at the beginning. This idea that there is not just as we think about history, there's not just this idea of community, but there's this idea of family. Mm-hmm. And so there's it's one thing to be historically informed about the broader community. It's another thing to be historically informed about the personal family. Yeah. And that's where things get particularly interesting because there's a sense of trauma. There's a sense of pain. But I don't know who I am if yes. I don't know where I came from. That's right. That's right. I don't know who I am. I, I had this experience and now, you know, I'm, I'm looking back with regret. But so I did the DNA test. Thing, okay. Yeah. You know, the ancestry.com. Now, the now they got me. Yeah. You know, now they're probably, you know, going to deny me health insurance or clone me or something like that. But the reality of the matter is, the reality of the matter is I, I did this, this test and I was sharing my results, right? Um, and, you know, I, I'll try to find my results and share them, you know, but I was sharing my results with a couple of my friends and they were like, you know, I'm shocked. I feel like you're, you're, you're from Nigeria. Like, I feel like your people are from Nigeria. Like, I don't think it's accurate. Right. <laughs> and so I'm sitting okay. back, I'm like, okay, that's kind of a stereotype, but whatever, you know, I'm, I'm Nigerian. I give off, you know, Nigerian <laughs> energy. right? And so I'm we'll like, leave that right. to the imagination. Yeah, what that I, know. Is. I don't know yes. what that is. <laughs> don't get me in trouble. <laughs> don't get me in trouble. But I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. So come to find out they did this re-up, you know, they got more samples yeah. And then like um now overwhelmingly Nigerian. Right? Oh really? <laughs> they were right. <laughs> so Nigeria's like fourth and they're like shot up. And, but I feel like they did with all black people. They just like made us all like Nigeria yeah. or something. <laughs> they just put us in like two different crops. It's like, okay, he's either from Nigeria or from this place, you yes, know. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I, you know, as I look back at it, I'm so frustrated because I'm like, this is probably an invasion of my privacy even though I opted out of all of this, but I am so desperate to find out Absolutely. who I am. Absolutely. I'm so desperate yes. to find out where I come from. Yes. I am so desperate to interpret my past in a way. And that longing, the essence of that longing seems like that's animation, that's motivation, that's power for how you live now yeah, yeah, because you're always searching, never finding, always reaching, never attaining, never grasping, but that that reach, there's something about that reach for the past that actually embodies and emboldens our witness. Man, it reminds me of, so 2019 was the 400 year anniversary yeah. of 1619 when Africans were forcibly brought to uh, the coast of colonial Virginia, one of the markers of what became U.S. race-based chattel slavery. And the country of Ghana in West Africa, their Department of Tourism declared it the year of return. I was so upset at these pictures, right? Man. I was so I caught this late. Yeah. And then later on in the year, in 2019, everybody's like, Ghana, Ghana. I'm like, where is the memo? Exactly. It wasn't in the I email. missed it. Y'all you know I would have planned it was, for Y'all it. sent it straight to my spam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be in Ghana. Man, yeah, it looked. I, y'all didn't it tell me lit. to return. I, I wasn't there, but the pictures, they looked lit. So it was brilliant, right? Because it plays on exactly what you were talking about in a positive way of connecting us to our history. 
And I think as African-Americans, people of African descent who were born in the United States, um, we have a very short history. It, it's the history of, of what became this country, right? But we actually have roots that extend back thousands of years. Yeah. If we only knew. If we only knew where we came from. So I think when people made it to Ghana, and by God's grace, I got to go to South Africa in 2019. So I still got to go to the continent yeah. in, in this really seminal year. But what it's doing is it's reminding us that we have a history that's longer than the oppression over here. And we have in, uh, languages and clothing and music and history and culture mm. that we can call our own apart from oppression, apart from white supremacy in this mm. way. So it was just, oh man, yeah, I wish I had gotten the memo too. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I don't know if it's, if it's something about that, that also felt like a loss. It felt like a missed opportunity. Yep. You know, it, I think being black in America, it always feels like you've missed something. My goodness. It always feels like you've you've been left out. It always feels like you were late to the party. And and I don't know when I watched when I saw those pictures and saw how much joy people had. Yeah. And I saw how long they were there. Some people was like, Oh, I'm there for two weeks, three weeks. I'm like, how do you afford this? <laughs> but as I was right. thinking, I was like, Man, wouldn't it wouldn't it be great? And it and it's almost like I had to be reminded is it's never too late. Yes. Yeah. It's never too late to return and it's never too late to be informed. It's never too late to learn about who you are. So one of the things that I will carry with me forever about going to Africa, South Africa in particular, was when local folks, local black South Africans said, welcome home. Hmm. Welcome home. And just those two words coming from who they came from and where we were, it felt like, okay, now I'm a tree with roots. Um, now I understand where you know a little bit better of who I am, and you just can't replace. It. And you're right; it's never too late. Hmm. Well, we got to take a break here. Uh, we're going to come right back because it's one thing to be historically informed. We also need to talk about what it means to be historically rooted as well in our practice. So, stay tuned. We'll be right back here on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. And we are back. Thank you so much to our sponsors for making Pass the Mic possible. We are really excited about talking about Can I Get a Witness, the season one theme. And before the break, we talked about this idea of being historically informed. But then I also said there's another side to this, which is being historically rooted. And my mentality for talking about this, my perspective, is really all about it's one thing to learn. And I think we push people to learn a lot, but it's another thing to live. It's another thing to actually, you know, act out the things that we're informed about. 
So as you think about these practices, right, historical roots, what are you doing to root yourself practically in history? What are you doing? And and this is especially for you because you're a historian, right? (laughs) So I'm like, yeah, but no, you are. (laughs) How do you, how do you even deal with all the stuff that you're learning and then now go home and function? Now go into the public space and you bring your whole black self. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a depressing story if you're talking about the history of race uh, in this country and really worldwide. But I get inspiration from the past, too, particularly from uh, historical figures. So the three I always name are Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. Namely because all three of these men and women are Christians, and they were all activists for justice in their own ways. So Ida B. Wells was an investigative reporter. What she did was journalism, and she brought hidden truths to light. So when mm. lynchings happened, she wrote the 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 the, um, the red record. Mm-hmm. And when lynchings happened, she put it out there, this, this sort of open secret that they were happening, A, and why they were happening, B. Mm-hmm. Because the myth was black men were raping white women or black people committed some unpardonable offense against white people. And the reality was most of the time these were petty squabbles that, that, be, that white men and white people in general made violent and deadly. They were reprisals for the economic success of black people. So Ida B. Wells really gets uh, radicalized when one of her friends is lynched. He was a, a um, part owner of a grocery store in Memphis mm-hmm. that was profitable and was cutting into the profits of white business owners. And so they came up with this farcical excuse and lynched him and his co-owners. Wow. And she wrote about that in a, a, a black newspaper in Memphis and literally gets run out of town. Hmm. Because, I mean, there's death threats, right? And, and, and moves on. But she commits her life to that. So she's a truth teller, but it's also rooted in what she believes about her faith. Fannie Lou Hamer is an incredible human being. Yeah. Yeah. Because she lives at the intersection of race, poverty, and gender. So she has all the strikes against her earthly speaking. Uh, she's black, uh, she's poor, and she's a woman. And, she has a really atypical story because she gets radicalized and catalyzed mm-hmm. in her 40s. Mm-hmm. So she's lived most of her life right. already. She listens never to, too late, right? It's never too <laughs> late, right? And she listens to this presentation about voting rights at her church nonetheless, right? Um, and she says, yes, this is a cause I have to get involved in. And 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 she endures a brutal beating in a rural Mississippi prison. She uh, helps form the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to wage a challenge against the all-white primaries in Mississippi. She even gives her testimony on national TV during the Democratic National Convention, all from this woman mm. from the Delta in Mississippi, right? Yeah. And throughout it all, she is outspoken about her faith. You could not meet her without her talking about Jesus, Christianity, faith, justice, all yeah. those things. Yeah. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. We, we, we know the broad contours of his story, sure. although we need to know much more in detail. And so these are people who put their faith to work. Hmm. And it's never been the case, particularly in the black Christian tradition, that the gospel and 
justice were these separate things. Right, right. Right? Like that's a false dichotomy. And that framing, as you've helped teach me, even that framing itself is to adopt the mindset of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So these historical figures help me reframe mm-hmm. the, the conversation about faith and what yeah. it looks like to put it into work. For me, it's really been important to root myself and really ground myself in the genealogies. Mm. You know, as you think about genealogies, this is like the mentality of, you know, this is wasted space, right? This is what a waste, you know, we're going to read the genealogy, so-and-so begat, so-and-so who begat, so-and-so, you know, and everyone, you know, they make the joke in black, I'll be getting out of here. You know, they say begat, begat, and I'll be getting out of here. But the reality is when you root yourself in the history of a people, before you can interpret what's happening in the story, you have to tell someone about what happened before. So when I stand in front of people, I am not just representing, you know, what I call Burns clan. I'm not just representing the Burns family. I'm not just representing my personal story, but I am the collection of stories and a collection mm. of journeys. And, you know, as as, you know, silly as it may sound, this idea that I am a representative of the black community and I'm a representative of where I come from and that these generations also live in my story and they animate how I, how I carry myself. So one particular person that really helped me to to see this, and we'll talk about preaching a little bit later in the season, but it's Dr. Samuel DeWitt Proctor. Yes. Yeah. And Samuel DeWitt Proctor had this way of communicating that was so unashamed and so unafraid of white response. Nice. There was just something about it yes. that was just so unafraid, so unashamed. And, I, you know, again, we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but how he relates that to black young people has been so important for me because I didn't learn this stuff because no one taught me. And now as a father, now as a leader of, of a diverse group of people, especially young people, it is my responsibility to teach. It is not just an opportunity that I have. It's a responsibility that I have that I need to teach the people who are around me and who are coming up after me about the history of our people, my history, your history matters. And then this is kind of like, as we think about historical root, you are black history, Right? Like you are someone's history. That's right. You are someone's ancestor. That's right. You are someone's legacy as well. So on these on these two poles, you're making history right now. Hmm. You're making your family right now. So then your life looks different. It feels different. It hits different. Because now you're not just going to treat yourself as a passive recipient of what culture is doing to you. But no, I'm an active participant in making sure that the legacy that has come before me um, or the, the the group that has come before me, then the legacy has come after me, it's going to be furthered and pushed forward through me. So Man. it's like, you have to root yourself that in history. That makes it important. Like, that's what it means to be rooted. Yeah. It's like, okay, I stand here as an active participant in an ongoing story. Yeah. So let me play my part well. Let me adjust how I live and let me take the responsibility, not just the opportunity, but the responsibility to teach Mm. and to carry on that legacy to others. So can I read another quote? Oh, please. This is from scripture. No, please, please. So Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we're talking about these historical figures, as we're talking about the the legacy and the future of our families, that passage comes to mind, right? We have this great cloud of witnesses that we can look back to, particularly in the Black American experience. People of faith who fought for justice. People of faith who simply survived, right? And and that is a testament. Mm. The fact mm-hmm. that you and I are here is because somebody before us survived what they went through. Wow. And a lot of people ask me, like, what keeps you going? How do you keep doing this work of racial justice? How do you not get discouraged? Well, obviously, I do get discouraged sometimes, but what encourages me is to look at this great cloud of witnesses, right? Mm -hmm. So Hebrews is talking about their faith in Jesus Christ. In a similar way, we can look at our great cloud of witnesses of the people who came before us, their faith in Christ, which allowed them to persevere, endure, and even throw off the shackles of oppression. And that's what gives us endurance to run this race, but then ultimately looking to Jesus, right? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Um, So those are that's kind of the witness of history that I see is like, here are people who came before me under much more oppressive, dismal, hard conditions, racially speaking, and they got through, and they had children, and I'm in that line, yeah. and like you're saying, I'm actually part of creating another legacy. Right, right. Um, and I think, so I got a lot more <laughs> I yeah, can say yeah. about the witness of history. Let me say this. I, I, I would imagine so. <laughs> you're going to have to cut me off. <laughs> I want to put this out there. I want to put this out there for the people. So it's not just studying individuals or knowing individual stories. It's also studying sort of the the historical events and eras of history, right? Like so colonialism. It's really crucial to understand we're living on stolen land. It's mm. really crucial to understand that Native Americans are still here. Come on. It's really crucial to understand that from the beginning of European contact with North America and other parts of the Americas, it was founded on the violent appropriation of land, Hmm. the destruction of whole peoples, not just physically and bodily, but of languages, of religions, of cultures. It's vitally important to understand that. It's vitally important to understand the institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. Right, and I've seen this. This is this is absolutely just flabbergasting to me. We still have people in 2020 mm-hmm. who are on the internet defending slavery. Oh yeah, they're just like you know, it wasn't great, but it wasn't <laughs> bad, right? And the Bible talks yeah. about slavery never condemned. Like the same arguments you hear in 1865 are out here in 2020. So it's really under- important to understand race-based chattel slavery. That your skin color largely determined your status, whether you were eligible to be enslaved or not, and that it was chattel slavery where you were considered property and not a person. And it was it was it was a it was a a violent institute. All of these things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Civil War is critical to understand, mm-hmm. right? Because it's the it's, it took America's bloodiest war to finally abolish slavery. But as Brian Stevenson 
says the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. Right, right. And that's critical to understand this idea of the lost cause. It's why there's a Confederate monument in front of the University of Mississippi yes, where yes, I go to school. Yes. It's why Confederate flags are used when um, in acts of white racial terrorism, right? It's why uh, uh, so many people call it the war of Northern aggression, mm-hmm. right? And talk about states' rights. Like all of this is part of a narrative that we have to understand. Of course, Jim Crow, the rise of conservatism. We can't understand the present without understanding the past. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I take a flip on that as we kind of wrap up this idea of the witness of history. I have to say this because I think it's important for us to realize this because, you know, black history is overwhelming and sometimes uh, can also be a source of shame or a source of um, guilt for us of how we're living. Let me just say this. The people who came before us, great as they may have been, didn't do everything right. (laughs) And they didn't do everything well either. And all of their examples aren't to be followed. And it's very difficult sometimes for us to hear that because we're so pro-black and we're so pro-black community and we're so wanting to educate ourselves and learn and follow the example that sometimes we need to take a step back and say, that wasn't it. You're not going to let this work kill me. Uh-uh, I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm not going to neglect my family. Nope, not going to happen. Because some of us would would hear, oh, go back into the history of your family. And there's so such active triggering trauma in that. Like there's such failure in your past. There's such failure in the history of your family. Or there there could be cowardice or there could be a collusion or compromise with the empire, you know, a compromise with the majority, whatever it may be. Just like our, the quote unquote heroes of biblical times, whether they be patriarchs or, um, you know, uh, people who are, who are famous prophets or kings within the Old Testament, just like they didn't do everything properly neither did our fathers and grandfathers and ancestors as well they didn't do everything right and so there is yet a history to be written there is yet a history to be observed and to be avoided there is yet a history to be filled in and who is going to stand up and say to interpret we're not going to do everything right it's not about perfection we're just going to take action we're going to do something and that's what history should. It's in its information, its rootedness, but it's not this perfect path. Absolutely. I mean, if anything, history teaches us it's not just what to do, but also what not to do, what yeah. not to repeat. Right. Yeah. There's like there's a lot to critique about the even the civil rights movement. Right. Absolutely. And 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 black churches and, yes. and all kinds of things. Yes. So as we think about it, we, we are historically informed. We believe we must be historically rooted. And how do we do that? Can you give one thing that, you know, I we could give a list, but then it would extend the podcast forever. Uh, There's so much for us to, to talk about. But can okay. you give one thing, just one element that someone could take with them and say, practically, this is how you become a witness in the context of your history? No, I can't give one thing. Uh, <laughs> but I can go fast. So I'm going to recommend three books about history. And these are not necessarily because they're the absolute best only whatever. It's because these are the books that really impacted me. Maybe because I read them early on. I don't know. But here they go. David J. Garrow's Bearing the Cross, which mm-hmm. is a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. You think you know MLK, but you don't. You don't know what his early life was like, what he went through, his struggles with other people, all of those things. So that's a really 
I think, um, well-written one. Jean Theo Harris has actually two books I want to recommend because she's really good at correcting our false narratives about civil rights history. The first is called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks by Jean Theo Harris. And the second is called A More Beautiful and Terrible History, Mm -hmm. The Uses Mm -hmm. and Misuses of Civil Rights History. Corrects a bunch of stuff that we think we know about civil rights. The last one is uh, um, from the 19th century. Now that's four. So I'm I'm a dock you. I'm a dock you five five points. That is four. (laughs) Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. I feel like I'm I'm, uh, uh, a politician talking over the moderator (laughs) at a debate. But thank you, Mr. Tisby. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Eric Foner's Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. Those books will get you started. Uh, I could go on and on. Ask me in the comments and the questions. <laughs> I want to tell you societies, historical societies to follow, websites and outlets. I want to tell you two things about the philosophy of history. Only thing I can say to underscore it all is if you don't know the past, you can't know the present or yourself. Yeah. I'll I'll say one thing that kind of has two levels. So the one thing is I want to challenge you this week to have a conversation with someone who has come before you and someone who has come who is coming up after you. The one thing that has cemented how important historical information is and historical rootedness is, is me being a youth pastor. When I was a youth pastor, it was the number one thing that a lot of young people did not know where we came from, where they came from, and thus had no direction for their future. They were only thinking about things from an American frankly, white perspective, evangelical perspective. And when presented with other stories and other narratives, it changed their paradigm and set them on the right path. Talk with someone who has come before you and someone who is yet to come after you. And I encourage you to do that on those two perspectives that will keep you historically rooted. Well, Jamar, That was great. Witness of history. Can I get a witness? The first part. But we have a little bit more for you. Stay tuned for a little bit more right after the break right here on Pass the Mic. are back here on past the mic listen we want to switch things up this year and have some fun segments as well won't be too long we know you've already come for the meat of the episode the meat of what we're talking about but it's good to have a little you know a little side you know some fun stuff i just want to say this was tyler's idea okay we're gonna do we always do an ama right (laughs) but we're gonna do a little reverse ama and we're gonna do an ama on each other which is basically three questions that we have for the other person that they don't know are coming. And these are just rapid fire questions. Okay. Are you ready? See, this I'll is start. Tyler's thing. I'm so excited because about he's this. good at coming out of left field with stuff and catching people off guard. But then you find out who the person really is. Okay. So the first question go. is this first question. It's actually an activity. So what I want you to do is I want you to press play on your Spotify or Apple music and see what comes up. Okay, and I know we may not be able to do this because of copyright, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to say whatever your service is, play me some music. I want you to do Siri, play me some music, and then we'll tell them what played. Uh, she plays it off of iTunes, and I use uh, Apple Music. No, no, no. I use uh, 
what is it called? Title. Um, okay. Oh, use title, bro. You down with the movement for real? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I said. I'm with Jay Z. <laughs> okay. Say, say, Siri, play me some music. Siri, play me some music. Oh, <laughs> what are you playing? Yes. What song? Um, here we go. Oh man, something about the name Jesus. Oh man, I, I was thank sure. you, Siri. Look, so thank I you for sure, helping me I out. I was Siri. sure that you was about to play some like Janelle Monae or something, or some uh, SZA. Or I'm, something I'm like. not going to tell you what came up on uh, <laughs> title. Oh, snap. See, I knew that was coming. I told you. <laughs> but All you right. won't get to see it. All yeah. right, your question one. Question okay, one. question one. Um, how do you feel about Liberty University as your alma mater? <laughs> how do I feel about like, This is an open-ended question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was talking with one of my friends about it. He actually has um, a show that he interviewed me for. And uh, we met each other at Liberty. And I was like, we both kind of came up with this mentality of, it happened. <laughs> we was there and we gone. <laughs> it happened. It happened. It just, it just happened. We, one it day happened. we popped up on campus. We was there and we gone. That's, That's just what great. I always say. Okay. It was a chapter in my life. <laughs> let me say, let me say like the old folks say, I don't look like what I've been through. <laughs> okay. That's how I feel about it's Liberty. Not University. where you start, it's where you finish. That's really Very it, man. Good. It's just it's hard to even look back on all that. But I thank God for the friends I met. But that's about it. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Yes. Good. Okay. Um, if if you could have dinner with three living people, who would you choose? <sighs> Brian Stevenson, Bree Newsom, Bernice King. Wow, that was quick, bro. <laughs> You was ready for that one, huh? Man, I just, I, I, I absorb everything they put out there. It's so enriching. Listen, if that ever happens, can I be a fly on the wall? Can I be Man, an armor bearer? We go do a podcast if okay, that ever okay, happens. Yeah, well, okay, all right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay, you're uh, number two. Okay, um, what's the pettiest disagreement you and your wife have? Don't get Ooh. us into the deep, deep. What's the pettiest disagreement? The pettiest disagreement that me and Mylena have. Ooh. Man, I might need to text her real quick, see if this is okay to say. <laughs> she would have an immediate answer, I know. <laughs> the pettiest disagreement we have, it's like little, it's very much so little things around the house. So um, I'll talk about myself first, because uh, that's safest. But I have this thing of taking out the trash, but not putting a trash bag back in <laughs> yeah. the trash can. I just consistently do that. And she cannot stand it. And then in reverse, she'll always eat a bowl of cereal and leave the bowl out or she'll put the bowl in the sink but won't empty the milk and so for oh. me it's like a sensory thing yeah. i have to empty out the milk <laughs> like the milk has i just have to be like Argh! and every time i walk in after she's eating breakfast i'll literally go to the sink just to see if she's <laughs> and i'll look at her i'll be like on just the one thing i just yeah but those are it's really those, those are petty things <laughs> all right Very so good. um one person on twitter this is our final question for you. One person on Twitter that you don't know personally who you will listen to no matter what the topic is. Uh, Adam Serwer, writer at The Atlantic. Yo, he's dope. Incredibly smart. I mean, yeah, that's a good one. Is he still on Twitter, though? I feel um, like he hopped off. I think he is. Okay. Fair enough. All right, final question for me. Okay. Um, can you do an impression of Kanye West for us? 
No, I cannot. That's not a question. <laughs> that is a question. It's an interrogative. The Can answer you? is no. <laughs> Y'all are trolling me with this Kanye. <laughs> I feel like, no, you got to come up with a different question. Because I feel like y'all know it's an issue. Y'all know it's, it's part of, it's a tough part. It's a sore spot for me. It's a tough, tough part for me. And y'all are continuing to troll me. You got to come up with a different question. Uh, okay. What's, um, what's the last country you visited internationally? Last country I visited internationally was Mexico. I was in Tijuana. For border? Or for yeah, border I was at stuff. the border. Yeah. Yep. I was in Tijuana. people go border. to Tijuana for different stuff. Oh, no, no, no. Border, border, border. Yeah. yeah. Tijuana yeah. was uh, amazing work being done down there. Very painful to be in the uh, Friendship Park, which is basically connected to San Diego. Very painful. Um, difficult. The border goes into the ocean. <laughs> mm. And it's like a very uh, odd, it's a very odd, disorienting, very disorienting uh, place, but beautiful people. So... Well, guys, we hope you've enjoyed that. Again, if you have any more questions for us or you want to respond. Off the wall. Let's get yeah. Tyler. Let's get Tyler in the corner again. Let's do it. Or if you want to respond to part one of season one of 2020 about the witness of history, of course, you can follow us at underscore Pastor Mike. And you can also follow us at Burns23 at Jamar Tisby. But until next time, we look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of Pass. The mic cannot get a witness. We'll see y'all next time. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.